0: Shalom, this is Rabbi Thomas Davis Hart from Beth- Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parashah number 16, Bashalach, after he had let go. The saga of the Exodus continues in this parashah. Right away, God's omniscience is demonstrated when he chooses to lead the Israelites, quote, the long way to the land knowing that if they were able to look back and see Egypt, they would turn back due to their lack of trust in God with the possibility of war. This is Exodus 13, 17, and 18. Even after experiencing so many extraordinary events, miracles, actually, early in their journey to God's destiny for Israel, the people were faint of heart. As Pharaoh approached, the people immediately grumbled against Moshe, making statements that were untrue regarding their slavery in Egypt. In Exodus 14, 12, we read, quote, didn't we tell you in Egypt to let us alone? We'll just go on being slaves for the Egyptians, unquote. How quickly we forget. In contrast, we read of Moshe's confidence and trust in God <clears throat> at this time that he would save them that very day, doing battle for them. Comparing this event to the one where Moshe strikes the rock twice, disobeying God's instructions was cost him a trip to the land, capital L, we learn that no one, not even God's people, are perfect. It's much easier to judge the events and people in God's Torah in the comfort of our own homes and relative freedoms that we enjoy, at least for now. For many in the United States, we only need to turn on a faucet for water or make a weekly trip to the grocery store for food. Even that's getting more difficult to do. But life was not so easy in biblical times. In the context of the Exodus, the people had to make choices that contradicted human nature and instinct. They left a familiar, albeit horrible, environment of slavery, slaughtered a young lamb or goat, ate it according to God's instructions, spread the blood on the lintels of their doors to protect them from the plague of death of the firstborn, literally ate and ran out of Egypt, and then walked on dry land as the sea of soup was separated and held on each side by the hand of God, as they crossed safely. They witnessed the destruction of the Egyptian army and were then led through the desert by a cloud and a column of fire by day and night, respectively. So we must take care to consider how we might have felt had we been the ones going through this phase of redemption and deliverance from sin, the Egyptian paradigm in this case. The attitude of the people changed at least for a short time after they crossed the sea, singing the Song of Moshe in Exodus fifteen nineteen with Miriam singing with the women as they danced. Exodus fifteen twenty one. <clears throat> the next phase in the deliverance of God's people is one which repeated reading, internalized, and striving to consistently apply to our lives. Exodus fifteen twenty five through six reads that there Adonai made laws and rules of life for them, and there he tested them. He said, if you will listen intently to the voice of Adonai your God, do what he considers right. Pay attention to his mitzvot and observe his laws. I will not afflict you with any of the diseases I brought to the Egyptians because I am Adonai your healer, <clears throat> Now this is very clear that his instructions are more than a gospel of profession. It's not enough to just say, I believe. The demons believe and they tremble. In order to show our believing in God, we have things to do that he tells us to do. How can we testify for the God we say we love and follow if we don't act the way that God tells us to live and follow? Today, we know the majority of people have been taught in Christianity that God's laws were abrogated on the execution stake, meaning they no longer apply to mankind. They're taught that all sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven and there is no danger of losing salvation. This is a critically erroneous teaching and attitude that will cost those who subscribe to it their souls. I say this out of love. It says it in God's Torah. If he tells us to follow his Torah, he's telling us to share these truths of his with anyone who'll listen. Recall that Yeshua told us that the road to destruction is broad, and many will enter through it, and that small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is in the New Testament, by the way. Matthew 7 13 and 14, further support that loving obedience to God's laws, commands, and rulings are required for all those whose names are to be written in the book of life is found throughout the Old and so-called New Testaments, including the book of Revelation. So you can't even throw the first book away, the Old Testament, and think you're going to get by with it. One example alluding to the fact that our spiritual growth is based on our loving obedience To God's instruction is found in Exodus 16, 4, where Adonai said to Moshe, Here, I will cause bread to rain down from heaven for you. The people are to go out and gather a day's ration every day. By this I will test whether they will observe my Torah or not. God is saying this. This is not my opinion. This is God's. These are not my statements. They are his. This is an example of a statement with multiple meanings. God's word is the bread of life. Like the man, manna was called man, that was to be gathered daily, we are admonished to hear, internalize, and act upon God's word daily. See Deuteronomy 6, 4-11, through and John 6, 25-59. Unfortunately, the people's lack of trust and faith that God would provide man every day prompted them to hoard the leftovers from the previous day. Well, God remedied their disobedience by causing worms, and rot to destroy the leftovers. Exodus 16:19. Similar Similarly, we're not to hoard our blessings, God's provision in our lives. We're to use what we need and share with others so that there is no excess or shortage, that there's no rust, decay, or loss of value. That's in Matthew 6:19 through 33. Now this is not socialism, where you rob from the rich and give to the poor and everybody's got the same. We've been pulled down to a third world country status we're heading even, even deeper on this falling away from God and the way that he meant for us to live. And I'm not talking about that here. I'm talking about everybody having enough according to God's Torah. I find it interesting that a parallel teaching is found in numerically the same chapter and verse in the Old and so-called New Testaments, the Brit Kaddisha, the Refreshed, Renewed Covenant, and that's chapter 6, verse 19 in both. Another conceptual parallel is found in Exodus 16:32 and Matthew 6:34 where God tells us not to worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Boy, Big Pharma wouldn't like that if people followed that we would need no prob- we would need no medications for anxiety or depression based on concerns for the next day. We're told by Yeshua in Luke 12:22 through 6 that therefore I tell you Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. He tells us as we go on that we're more valued than the sparrows and the ravens. He doesn't promise us a place to live, interestingly. And he even says the son of man has no place to lay his head. But he does promise food and clothing. It may not be uh, from Jordash or, uh, or makeup from Sephora or all these things that we're being embarded with today. But he will sustain us. And we're to be content with that. The two courts of man that Moshe was instructed to set aside before the testimony to be kept throughout all generations. is symbolic of God's promise to feed us and is promised to provide the bread of life, God's Torah, for all who choose to partake of it and become reconciled to God through Yeshua's sacrifice. An interesting side note concerning the man subsequently used to symbolize the bread of life is the fact that anyone considered a true believer in God's eyes must partake of the bread of life. That means lovingly following God's laws, commands, and rulings. All who choose to reject God's word for apostate religion, identified in Revelation 17 as Protestant and Christian systems, are described in Isaiah 4.1 concerning the end of days. We're told, quote, on that day, seven women will grab hold of one man and say, we will supply our own food and wear our own clothes. Just let us bear your name, take away our disgrace, unquote. This statement tells us that in the end of days there will be people who will attempt to identify themselves as God's people. We're seeing that today. But who do not follow God's Torah, do not partake of the bread of life. They are counterfeit believers of whom God says to them, including many prophets and teachers, when compared to the definition of a true believer in God's Torah. And this definition is found in John 14, Romans 1 through 3, and the sevenfold witness in Revelation. Quote, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Matthew seven twenty-two through 9. So we can learn much more about the consistency of God's Torah by researching additional scriptures relating to subjects and concepts found in the five books of Moshe, comparing them To the break Kaddishah, the refreshed, renewed covenant, man was to be set aside through all generations and the implications of that command. Finally, we're told in Exodus 17 1 14 through 15, Adonai said to Moshe, Write this in a book to be remembered and tell it to Yehoshua. I will completely blot out any memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moshe built an altar called it Adonai Nisi, that means Adonai is my banner or my miracle, and said because their hand was against the throne of Yah, Adonai will fight Amalek generation after generation. Now I taught the week before this parasha that Amalek still exists through Hamas and Hezbollah, and that has not been exterminated to date. Recall that Amalek is not one man, rather it's a way of life. He used to be, well, he was a human, but it's a way of life that he embraced. Evil, antinomianism against God and his people. And we can say with confidence that Amalek will not be completely destroyed from under heaven until Israel is safe in the land and no longer has any enemies. How do I know this? Well, we read in Deuteronomy 25, 19. Remember what Amalek did to you on the road as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you by the road, attacked those in the rear, those who were exhausted and straggling behind, when you were tired and weary. He did not hear God. Therefore, when Adonai your God has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies, in the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance to possess, you are to blot out all memory of Amalek from under heaven. Don't forget. There's an exclamation point there. This final battle is yet to come, and Israel, true believers, will be the victor, so says God. The weak, the unsuspecting, were attacked on October 7th in the kibbutz. Hostages were taken. They're being mistreated, those who are still alive. Some have been killed. Amalek is alive and well, and will not totally be defeated until Israel that's all true believers, are living in the land God designated for Israel early on in biblical history that has not been fully occupied to this day. So it's yet to come. There might be a reprieve for a while from attacks. I don't know. But I do know that until the situation exists for Israel, Amalek will be alive and well and creating havoc for God's people. I have to rise out of Judges 5, one through 31. And this narrative described the victory of the Israelites led by Devorah. Yay, Devorah, who was a judge of Israel. She took the lead in this battle when Barak, the son of Avinoam, informed her that he would not go to battle unless she went. Devorah reminded him that he would not receive the glory because God would hand Sisera, who was the captain of the army of the Canaanite king Yavin, who opposed Israel for 20 years over to a woman. Get this. How many in Christianity, how many clergy teach that women are to be silent? We are not to have positions of leadership. Well, let me tell you, that is a chauvinistic attitude, and some of the rabbis have the same problem. God designated Devorah as a judge of Israel. And the scripture that Christianity refers to, saying wives, be, you know, ask your husbands these things and be quiet in the synagogues and all of that is completely taken out of context. That's for another lesson. Don't get me started. Obviously, Barak respected Devorah and relinquished all glory for a victory to her. However, she and Barak gave all praise to Adonai where all praise truly belongs. Similar to the crossing of the Sea of Suf by the Israelites described in our parasha, God caused the chariots to bog down while pursuing the Israelites and destroyed the entire army in complete panic. The difference is that this time the Israelites are fighting and the battle is taking place inside the land of promise and the victory song is led by Devorah and Barak and not Moshe and Miriam. Our break Kata out of Revelation 15, 1 through 4. In this narrative, seven angels sing the song of Moshe, the servant of God and the song of the lamb included in this week's better God is identified as the one true God for you alone are holy it says. Like the justice God exacted on Pharaoh and the Egyptian army we read that Adonai God of heaven's armies just and true are your ways king of the nations. The truth of reliable information we're given in God's Torah about his character flies in the face of those who teach a description of God as all love. The fact that the Bible describes his wrath numerous times in numerous scriptures. And I'm going to read these off just to show you how many places, uh, this is just a few, where you can find these things. Exodus 15, 7 through 10. Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 15. Romans 1, 18 and 19. Joel, chapter 2, 10 and 11. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 15. 18, 2, 2 and 3, Revelation 6, 12 through 17, Revelation 11 verse 18, Revelation 16, 8 and 9, uh, chapter 19 verses 15 and 16, and Colossians 3 verse 6. To name just a few, this defines the idea that God has only a single attribute of love. Read your Torah. It's extremely important for those who hope to be included as the bride of Yeshua described in Revelation, who, by the way, is not the church. Church is a mistranslation of the word ecclesia, which means called out ones or assemblies, not church. We can't cling to the false idea that God is all love and that he will not send anyone to hell. We've got to get our facts straight, folks reconcile ourselves to God through Yeshua's sacrifice and follow his path to redemption and an eternity with him. This necessarily includes lovingly following God's Torah, his instructions, once we have crossed the sea, so to speak, from the Egyptian slavery, that's our former self, and taking on the yoke of God, which is easy and my burden is light, according to Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. It can and must be done while it is still day, John 9, verse 4. I hope you can hear the compassion in my voice because I care about everyone who's listening to these podcasts. I'm not saying this out of hate or political incorrectness, but it happens to be because God is not politically correct. And I'm doing my very best to interpret his Torah in truth and love. Again, if you have any comments, any questions, anything you would like me to speak on, go to our site website at rabdavis.org and go to the Ask the Rabbi link, and I will be happy to address your comments. Thank you for listening. Shalom.